Hello and welcome to episode 110 of the Talking Football podcast. My name's Derek Clark and every week we try and bring you an in-depth interview with some of the most engaging and colourful characters involved in the game. This week I chatted with someone that I've had the pleasure of getting to know over the past year, one of the most talented coaches in the game, Steve Ayer. Steve's in brilliant form as he recounts his time growing up in and around Manchester City. We hear about his short-lived playing career as well as his coaching journey, where he helped bring through some of the greatest talents in recent years, the likes of Phil Foden, Kieran Trippier, Micah Richards, Daniel Sturridge and more. He also tells us about his stint as Rochdale boss, his time at Huddersfield and Chesterfield and of course working alongside Joey Barton at Fleetwood as well as loads more in between. So sit back and enjoy the latest episodes of the Talking Football Podcast. everyone and welcome to another edition of the Talking Football Podcast. I'm absolutely delighted to say we're joined on the line by a good friend of mine, Steve Ayer, former Manchester City youth coach, of course, uh, formerly of Rochdale as well in Huddersfield. Steve, how are you doing? I'm very well. How are you, Derek? Yeah, not too bad, thanks. Uh, not too bad. Just enjoying the, the, well, I say enjoying. The sunshine's been a bit overwhelming for a guy like me. It's been absolutely scotchy on the last, last couple of days. Uncomfortably you've been, the, you've been taking the dog out. I have been, yeah. Though it's too hot for the dog as well. He's a, a big Akita, so he's got about two uh, two layers of, of fluff on him. So he's struggling as well. So, well, like roll on winter time. Yeah. And um, before we talk about the, the career, Steve, of course, um, the Euros have just passed. Um, England uh, mightily unlucky, coming ever so close, losing in penalties to, to Italy and. In the final on Sunday, uh, as, a, as a coach like yourself, I mean, you've coached a lot of these young lads. Um, what did you make of it? Well, I thought it was obviously a fantastic tournament. Uh, thankfully, the two best teams got to the final, which isn't always the case. Um, we obviously, clearly the best team in the in the first 30 minutes, um, maybe up to half-time, but from that point, I never saw us as favourites in the, in the, in the tie. Once Roberto Mancini, who I've been a fly on the wall and seen work at Manchester City, um, I won't say gambled, but educated uh, risks, uh, but with substitutes, really changing the speed of the game, the dynamic and flow of the game. Almost from half-time, I didn't really believe we could win. Um, there was a mood around it, the commentary. I mean, I watched the BBC one when it was fine, but the commentator suggesting that the crowd shouldn't be starting the carnival songs on 60 Minutes was a little bit doom and gloom. Gary Lineker saying, oh no, it's extra time. Oh no, it's penalties. It felt like there was no real surge of energy and belief, even though once it gets to penalties, it's a lottery, Derek. Yeah. It always felt we were hampered with worry and concern. Um, and I don't know if the players felt that, but that was certainly the atmosphere and the energy that came through my television. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned there Mancini. I can't help but being, being impressed by him in this tournament. And, and, and I mean... The work he's done at Italy is, is incredible, isn't it? Is it 34 now unbeaten or something like that? Yeah. They're unbeaten. I mean, it's, it's, it's remarkable considering where Italy were. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, just listening to their player interviews suggesting that he woke the giant up, really, uh, and told them that they will win the Euros. You've got to, you've got to set those challenges and, and, and have those beliefs, but not sure how many of them actually believed it. But almost from game one, 
we recognised, oh, these are dangerous, these these could go deep, these are, could actually be the best team in the tournament. So from a footballing point of view, whilst, you know, devastated on the evening and possibly going into the next day that England didn't win, Derek, from a football point of view, with, with hand on heart, you know, we've seen Denmark and Greece in years gone by and others, you know, win. You don't always have to be the best team to win a competition, you know, six or seven games. But almost from game one, we were all suggesting they were the best team in the tournament. So football wins. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a, a, a semi and now a, a final that, that Gareth's led the, the team to. Do you think you can go maybe one step further at, at Qatar? Do you think, was it, think that was the real chance on Sunday? No, yeah, I do, absolutely. It was almost a home tournament for us uh, and it was amazing. I know there's a lot said about the 18 months we've had in the country, but that's been all over the world. Yeah. Um, but it was just amazing for the, our country to unite um, you know, put our rivalries aside and all join up and, you know, the old anthems and the songs, um, the players appear to socially get on superbly and the country completely went with it. It was great to see young children getting into the sport that we love. Yeah. Um, you know, lots of women, um, not suggesting that, you know, women haven't always been into football, but the swell of it now is enormous yeah. due to the, the growth of women's football. Obviously, the real old generation, like like my father, for instance, yeah. you know, not seen anything since 1966. You don't know whether they're going to get that close again. And I thought there was some real optimism that helped the team. And I think the, the, the outside support, I don't think we could have done any more. I know there was some aftermath in terms of people barging in the ground and some poor behaviour that we're hearing and stuff that goes on online. But in terms of the event, I thought it was. I thought the fans certainly played the part. And as for the team, I feel like we were absolutely maxed out to get to the point of penalties. And in the end, we've lost by a spot kick or two. But I do believe we were maxed out. Yeah, yeah it's fine margins at the end of the day. Um, Steve, looking back at your career then, growing up, uh, was it in Salford? Is that where you grew up as a youngster? Were you always kicking the ball around? Yeah, of course, yeah. Still still in the same spot as well, living worsely in Salford. Uh, Manchester City is my team. Those that know me, you know, know how passionate I am about the club that, you know, I, I love. But I love football, so, you know, I respected other football teams. Liverpool being a great team of the 70s. And begrudgingly, Manchester United and their stranglehold on, on, on British football for so long, you know, with Sir Alex Ferguson, you know, I, I had only the respect for it. And uh, yeah, so obviously Manchester-based. Um, my dad was an ex-footballer at Manchester City um, and wrote books, autobiographies about his time at the club, his love of the club. So I probably didn't have a choice. I was straight into the into the into main road uh, as as long as ago as I can remember. Uh, loved the team. Obviously, then started to get into the teenage years where Manchester City were having a lot of trauma. So emotionally, it was a drain when going through my schooling life, United were dominating and City were getting relegated often. Um, but I stuck to, to my principles and my values and the club that I love. And then once I'd finished school, I joined Burnley as an apprentice and then Wigan as a professional. Got to the age of 20. Um, and then at the point of release, I think the choice was uh, quite easy, actually, Derek, because there was no concrete offers, only offers of trials. But I was very fortunate enough to be offered a coaching position at Manchester City, very young at 20, to be offered it and accept it. And the club that I love stayed with for 21 years. So I think I can safely say very, very much in my blood. Yeah, I dream come true at that age. But see, your time at Burnley as, as a player, Steve, 
being let go must be one of the. I mean, we get players on all the time that, that being let go by, by big clubs, yeah. and some of them are in tears and all that, and thinking, "What do I do now?" Can you remember back to that that point? And yeah, you were a bit different. Yeah, I was sad. I, um, I always thought, Derek, that I could nick a twelve-month professional contract somewhere, and I, I did, thankfully, half an hour away. At, you know, at, at Wigan. Yeah. Um, but I had a level head, I think, and I had good family support and I wasn't ready to be in somebody's first team at 18 years of age at Burnley. Now, in those days, you used to have a reserve team and you used to have two substitutes. Um, there was no feeder clubs. There was no loan system. There was no under 21s, which turns to 23s. You know, these days there's all that, plus there's seven subs. You can have as many as 22 turning up for a football match. So, so the, the, the squads have, have really grown. So it was very much a guillotine operation at the time. Now, you know, like thousands of others, I felt a little bit hard done to and I felt like I needed a bit more time, but you just don't get it. They run to a tight budget. I was only, you know, perhaps good enough to be a, um, a youth team, a youth team captain, reserve team captain, but in the lower leagues. Um, but once you sign professional, there's no there's no real time for development. The emphasis now these days, 18, 19, is development. And they talk about lads possibly being ready when they're 22, 23. When you were 18 and you had to turn pro, you had to turn pro and almost be ready for somebody's first team squad. And I've not got a hang up with that because I needed another 12 months that you don't get. So uh, yeah. it got me on the coaching road earlier than expected. And thankfully, I can say I've done 30 years of coaching now, which was a real head start. Whereas at the time, I was devastated. I wasn't playing in the football league and I was combining coaching and playing in the Vauxhall Conference yeah. with Runcorn and Southport, Chorley in the league below. Um, but it didn't have to give me a really, really good head start and an early start into coaching. Yeah, so see when you offered that coaching role, was that when you sort of uh, gave up the, the playing side of things? Was that an easy decision to make? Well, no, it, 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 what it was, um, you know, as they say about happening for a reason, it was easy to combine the two. You have lots of energy. I was playing in the conference at a good level. Um, obviously, it's the fifth tier of, of English football. You know, you're down London every other week. Or it was... It was you know, I still had ambitions that you might get picked up, but I could combine coaching, learning how to coach. I certainly wasn't any type of coach at that point, very much a novice and a fly on the wall. But I was still playing and I was very fit when I was playing because I was joining in every day, you know, as, as, a, as a young coach. And I was able to handle it, you know, around the young players. And then so I was basically still training every day. I was in good shape, but just coaching Manchester City's junior teams, the schoolboys. But what happened, um, I progressed on the coaching ladder and I got offered an under 16 position before 18s, before reserves. But that takes up your Saturday. So the point at that point was, what do I want to do here? And obviously there was going to be a longer chance of a career as a coach at Manchester City than, than bashing around in the conference. So I finished at 27. I picked up loads of injuries in non-league. Some people actually say to me quite nicely, oh, you didn't make it because you got injured. Well, that's not actually true. I've got to be fair to anybody listening. I didn't make it because I wasn't good enough or quick enough at the time, perhaps. But all my injuries came in non-league. So I'd never say I didn't make it because I got injured. But at 27 years of age, I was around the Saturday scene of, of youth football at Manchester City. So to be fair, for me, it was an easy, easy decision to stop playing. Yeah. In terms of the coaching then, uh, of course, you, you sort of, through the years, you harness your, your coaching skills and stuff. But at that early age, Steve, was it... 
was it your dad you sort of you sort of get get harnessed um your, your coaching abilities from or was it was it still yeah here? well we both love the game and he's done every job in football as I have which you know played coached assistant managed caretaker managed managed um you know lots of rejections um some good times in the game scouted so I was never far away from you know, it's all we ever would talk about and it was all we'd do as, as, a, as a pastime, you know. So we'd be always at games of any level. So it, it was about love, loving the game. And then obviously as you love the game and you broaden your horizons and you put yourself around the game, you start to meet more people. But you also, you know, you're watching different teams, age groups. And I was, com- I was just completely consumed by it, really. And to be honest with you, I feel like, you know, a little bit, not emotional about it, just when I reflect, it's made me um, in, in a lot of ways, Derek, but it's also ruined me and others because I just haven't had time or consideration for anything else because I was either loving Manchester City or I was just loving football full stop and there was just uh, there was just nothing for anybody else, anything else or at times anybody else. So a selfish, um, driven uh, dream, if you like, has, has, has opened so many doors for me, but it's possibly closed a couple too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, just touching on Main Road, you mentioned uh, Steve, of course, um, a different now. We've got the Etihad, but and Main Road memories. It was it was something else. That ground wasn't it? Oh well, it was brilliant. Um, obviously, as a kid, um, I remember my dad being a, a, a young apprentice, um, and he was one of those popular ones. I think within the club, yeah. I think his best friends went on to become legends at the club. You know, Neil Young, Max Summerby came later. You know, Tony Buck came late, you know, and so on and so forth, Colin Bell. Um, they went on to become legends. Um, but my dad was like the old-fashioned boot boy that would be first in, last away. Same on the training pitch, etc. cetera. Um, I'm very popular amongst, amongst the club, around the club. So I almost had almost full access of the club, you know, from being a, to- from being a toddler. Um, and my dad was just the opposite of the parent that would want to leave five minutes from time, 10 minutes from time to miss the traffic. My dad had this uh, thing about, about staying and let the traffic all go. Yeah. So I would still be at Manchester City at like half past five, six o'clock on a match day in an empty stadium. And I think it's because he got on so well with Stan Gibson, the old groundsman. And there would only be three of us left in the ground. But Stan would be straight on the pitch mowing it. My dad would be in the centre circle chatting to him and I'd be a little toddler I just watched Manchester City in a full house, and I'm I'm, I'm stood on Main Road. It was just like it, it just became just in in the, in the blood completely. Then all of a sudden, you start mixing with your dad's friends. Um, you get older, you start going to the game on your own. And to go back to the original point of Main Road, it was great that it was so intimidating for other team supporters. You know, it was in the middle of Moss Side, which was a you know a tough area to yeah. to be brought up in. Uh, but for a visitor, it was tough to. To, to get to the point, to get to the ground from Manchester Town Centre to get through Moss Side to get to the game was hard enough and back out. And we use that to our advantage, I think, often with not many travelling fans and some teams not really fancy coming playing at Main Road. But when it was full, you used to see it with semi-finals, you used the FA Cup semi-finals, League Cup semi-finals. And we've obviously had some amazing times and memories there, but also we've had a lot of sad and heart- heartbreak too because we've been relegated there enough times. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, looking at the, the club now and just the re- redevelopment of the area and all that around, around not just the stadium, but round about it, it's, it's 
could you envisage that back then, the main road days? It's, 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 it's a completely different sort of club now, isn't it? It is, and it was very sad when we left and we got beat by Southampton in the rain at the final day, um, which was, you know, a phrase which has been used, all we use, typical city. Yeah. Um, but it was time for a fresh start, a new investment, and, you know, a, a, a trail of managers, you know, to help to get Pep Guardiola to this point. I've all had relative success, whether that be through silverware, improving the team, um, and getting players through recruitment into, into the club, and some of which have stayed, some legends have stayed for 10 years and more, Zabaleta, Company, Hart, um, Aguero, Silva, you know, so it goes back from almost right from the start of, of, of when we went to the Etihad after the Commonwealth Games, and, and now, obviously, it just keeps developing all the time. And it's um, an amazing place to play football for one of the world's best teams now. Yeah, you spent so much time there at Man City, Stephen, and so much success as well. But with, with the use was it was it five uh, was it five league titles you won there? Um, yeah, not 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 totally. Again, I need to be totally you know fair and square here. We had an unbelievable leader of development and the academy in Jim Cassell, and the head coach of it all. Um, he's still going. Is Alex Gibson? He was from the FA. Another one that came that that was a good footballer, but never quite got it in the league, was a good non-league footballer, got stuck into coaching early, came to City at the right time, combined with Paul Power, who was my hero, my first captain that I remember. Um, there was Frankie Bourne, who was an excellent coach. There were others. And obviously I was like the youngest who was just completely in support of, of these boys. Mm-hmm. Um, a gentleman called Barry, Barry Poynton worked tirelessly to, to sign the best players. We had a great junior academy under a gentleman called Terry John, so we got the best infants. And we all really, really mucked in together. Uh, but the best thing that I could say is, over time, gradually, we got a few battlers in at the start. Then we got a couple of Irish boys with a bit of talent. Then we got some slowbacks. And eventually, we believed that we got the best group of players at a certain time that helped us win football matches, win leagues, win the FA Youth Cup, win lots of tournaments. And that was built up over about a 10-year period. So I certainly would never, ever take any credit or claim to be anywhere near the top of that chain. There's some fantastic people who were allowing me to be part of it with them, and I think I've just named them. Yeah, absolutely. What's the secret to success at that sort of level? Is, I guess it's great to win silverware, but I guess you want to see boys make it in the, in the first team and that sort of stuff as well. Yeah, well, you've got to um, you know get the, get the best players and you've got to look after them, but you've also got to not... You know, make sure there's no divorce from you and their their parents. You know, you've got to, you know, as much as you talk about man management of a player in a dressing room, you've also got to man manage the parents. As it's got older, you've got to man manage the agents, sadly. Um, So I I like to think, Derek, that it would always be about players. But we had some great coaches. We obviously had a a way to play and a way to win. And before it all changed with, you know, um, this EPP, as such, where you have to have so many things in place the same. I do believe a lot of academy footballers uh, and teams and clubs are very much the same, whereas when we were starting, us and everybody else, you could do your academy how you wanted to do it. No, you can't. There's a syllabus that you have to stick to that comes from the Premier League largely. Um, And if you wanted to do it standing on your head and work for two hours a day or 22 hours a day, that was entirely up to you. So we had our way of doing it. We believed we worked harder than everybody else, but that's that's up for challenge. Um, and you would get a different game against the other academies, certainly locally. 
you know, you'd have a really good battle against Manchester United, another good battle with Everton and Blackburn. You'd have a technical game against Liverpool and Steve Highway. You'd possibly be up against Liam Brady and Arsenal in the Youth Cup. And everything was just slightly different. And it was just great learning for me as the youngest coach in, in that setup. But I do believe now, Derek, that everything, you know, almost like stringently is is the same. And I'm not sure it's to the to the game's benefit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, some cracking players you've you've coached through the years, uh, Steve. I mean, I mean, two that spring to mind that, uh, of course, were in England set up: uh, uh, Phil Foden and Kieran Trippier. Um, those two, did did you know at an early age that they were they were going to reach the top? Yes, yes. Again, at the time, again, we have to thank Barry and Jim so much for for signing good players. But I think I had a, a, a decent eye of you know, it's not hard actually, but you know. Yeah who's a good player, but it's all right spotting who's a good player when they're 14. But you've got to try and work out who's going to be a good player when they're 20. Yeah. You know, that's because the job really, you want to win games and cups, leagues, but the job really is to get people, players into your first team. But our job, we loved our lads so much. We were like football fathers. We just wanted them to become great lads, uh, back up what their parents were doing, but just to become a professional footballer in the football league ideally doing it for us but we just love, love them so much we just wanted to give them a, a start in life and just over a period of time we had great teams we hardly got beat um we obviously played good good football and we combined physical players with talented players you know some don't get a mention we you know we signed Stephen Ireland from Ireland from Ireland you know he wasn't ready at 14 but he was ready at 17 yeah. but, the, the, but Jim knew when to wait for him and when to pull him and when to push him uh, we had Michael Johnson, who was the best young professional that played for me. I had a fantastic team. And then he arrived at 13 and he was just this little bit different. So we were upgrading all the time. Then we got Daniel Sturridge, who was clearly the best striker in the country at the time. Kasper Schmeichel would come in the system. Then me, all of a sudden, he's heading the ball better than anybody else in the country. Micah Richard is scoring 12 headers on a Saturday morning for the under-18s. And you're thinking, well, we've got so many good players and we've got pace, talent, but... We've actually got the best in the country here in about eight or nine different categories. And then just underneath, Kieran Trippier was without a shadow of a doubt the best passer of a football that we've ever seen. And going from under 11 to under 12, Derek, the pitches go because you go from eight aside to 11 and the pitches go big and it can be a graveyard for a lot of young players because they can't run around it and they can't kick the bigger footballer. Kieran could obviously, you know, you see how he does it now. His technique was, a, was, 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 was like beyond the syllabus. And then right in the infants, if you like, was Phil Foden. And of, of an evening, we would train at, uh, we'd train the youth team morning and afternoon. And of an evening between four and six, about 100 boys would come and train in the indoor dome for a couple of hours, all in the same kit, all about four foot, all having to have the shoelaces tied. And it was, a, you know, very much a needle in the haystack. But, we, but it, with him, it was so obvious to see because he was just this incredible, messy type dribbler and receiver with incredible balance and light feet but also the perfect team player too. So he could dribble around the whole team and score, or he could be in the middle of the pitch passing to all his teammates and his head on a swivel at all times. And it was almost ridiculous. Whatever Kieran could do at pinging a ball, Phil could was doing stuff that was like elite, that was, again, way, way beyond the syllabus. And it was actually astonishing how talented he was and obviously still is, you know, even though he's, he's 21, seven trophies, he's a parent, you start thinking he's a man, but he's still really a boy. But 
in that age group of seven to nine to 12 before I left, I was actually mesmerised by what I was seeing. And now you're saying managing the players sometimes are not ready. That's what sort of Guardiola's done with them, isn't it? I mean, folk were saying, get them in, get them in the team, but he's, he's managed them superbly, hasn't he? Just sort of integrating them slowly and, and steadily. Yeah, it was a frustration because everything that Phil has been, every challenge he's been given, he, 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 he's grabbed and, and, and ran off with, you know, quite comfortably. Uh, he started off by coming on in injury time when City were two and three nil up and he was playing in the corner flag with Kevin De Bruyne and David Silva. Uh, and he was clearly missing that 90-minute experience. He was missing that nil-nil experience when the pressure's on. He's comfortable coming on at 3-0. There was a breaking point when he played against Tottenham at the Etihad and scored from close range with a header. That was the next move forward. Then all of a sudden, he's scoring at Wembley. Then all of a sudden, he's playing at Old Trafford, man of the match. Um, he's scoring on all these grounds. And you're thinking, we can't hold this boy back anymore. But he was up to 100 appearances quite quickly, Derek, yeah. despite those snatched minutes. Um, and it was a different story for Sancho, who I didn't work with, but he came in the building and with impatient ambition, he wanted to go and play in a different country, different culture. Yeah. He wanted first team experience, he wanted TV experience. And eventually it's come round for him. He's played for England, missed a penalty or not. And he's obviously on the verge of playing for Manchester United. So he went a different way. But for Phil, it was very difficult to get a start around the mega talented superstars of Manchester City. But then the more minutes he got, it made it impossible for him to be left out. Yeah, another guy we'll, we'll touch on that, that you worked with at Fleetwood. Um, you Joey Barton for is a, was it a teenager? You, you've known, known him since Steve. What what was he like? Um, came right from behind the pack as a fourteen year old, where only him believed. I think that he could make it to yeah. the level that he did. Um, there were people in front of them, but but gradually he knocked them all out of the way. He got himself noticed. I think he's got a lot to for to Jim Cassell and Arthur Cox to thank for, who really spotted uh, an uncut diamond, pushed him, um, and eventually it just all opened up for him and he took his opportunities. One of the best, Michael Brown was was another one before him, but he's one of the best at taking opportunities. You know, um, lots of people moan about not getting opportunities. That's, that's, that's I believe that's, that's a myth. Lots of people get opportunities, just that the best people take them and, and not enough people do take them. But he took the very tiny opportunities. I think he missed out on a youth cup selection, um, which meant so much to every youth department. And because of it, I think the reserves were playing on the same evening or the night before. So we actually got a game in the reserves because he didn't get in a youth cup game. Yeah. And I think he kicked a few and put them on the backside. I think he ran around. I think he played well, put his personality on it. And he got himself noticed. He ended up playing for England. So he's some have made some have sailed through. Kieran Trippier, Phil Foden, we've discussed. But I think in Joey's case, it was just grit and determination. Everything you really want to see in terms of like pushing the hunger button. Um, he's as good as I've seen at, at, at making himself a footballer, whilst no means being a certainty. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, before we move on, to Roger was uh, Vladimir Vice was was he at Man City when you when you were there? What what was he like? Can I know he, amazing he just for a bit. Absolutely amazing. Again, it was Barry pointing again, but we we broke into we got four lads very quickly. Philip Mental, a goalkeeper, Albert Rujnak, who's played in big games for Slovakia, but didn't make this tournament. Yeah, Robert Mack, who scored in this tournament, and it was his goal. It wasn't an own goal, with incredible pace. Yeah. And Vladimir Weiss with the most, you know, just tantalising skill, yeah. um, ball carrying. 
amazing, amazing footballer, hell of a lad, and, and another one from a footballing background. So yeah, um, again, cool. it's nice, Derek, when when you talk about let these lads. We won the youth cup with him in the team. Yeah, an amazing player, um, and he'll think some will think he's achieved a lot in the game, but that skill deserves more. Yeah. So 2011 then, the, the summer, Rochdale come calling, Steve, and they offered you the, the chance to become their manager. Was that something you ha- had to take some time to consider being at Manchester City for so long? And um, did you have offers um, during your time before that that you maybe knocked back? No, not at all. There was a vacancy at Rochdale. I was just starting to get ambitious and itchy feet about possibly moving on, but never in my wildest dreams thought about leaving Manchester City. Keith Hill left having done well. I think he got the opportunity to go to Barnsley. Yeah. Uh, and a few people recommended me for the role and Rochdale spoke to me. I think we'd beaten Rochdale about a month before in a reserve game, played them off the park. Um, I, the, the, the chain of events, I'm not sure, you know, but I did suggest that I would be interested in, in speaking to them. But I was very upfront with Manchester City and, and told them and they, they knew that I was ambitious and ready for possibly a new challenge. Uh, so I went and met Rochdale a couple of times, call it an interview. It was more than informal, that was for sure. Um, I went through that process and they offered me the job. But really, even at that point, I had no um, intention of leaving Manchester City. It was where my heart was. And I still think I was growing just underneath now the, with the reserves. They just turned the name to an elite development squad. Uh, Roberto Mancini was the first team manager. It was largely an Italian setup. I was well thought of, but I'd had this first team League One offer from a local club. Um, so I actually turned down the, the opportunity to manage Rochdale uh, and I thought that would be the end of that. And they asked me again uh, with, you know, slightly different circumstances in terms of terms and what have you. And that made me just, you know, took my head back a little bit. I remember my father saying to me, this is getting quite serious now. Uh, but I still wasn't really feeling that I was ready for the, for, for the jump. Until I, I spoke to uh, Gary Cook at Manchester City, he was very, you know, uh, heavily noisy and involved in the in the upturn of the events at the club, the owners, the new manager, the recruitment. Um, he was putting City on the map, and uh, he asked, you know, I've, I've heard about the, about this. Do you want to have a chat about it? Also with Brian Marwood, who's still at the club, and we did a few laps of City's training ground on a chat. Um, and there was just two moments in, in it that really made my mind up, Derek. One, Gary Cook was, go and have a, a go at this. Um, you really should. You deserve You deserve it. They deserve you. You deserve them. But listen, should it not work out for you, you just come straight back here, you've got a job for life. Yeah. Now, to be fair, for a young man to hear that, that was absolutely incredible. What I didn't do is obviously get it in writing. Because three months later, Gary Cook left the club. So it wasn't worth anything other than the energy that it gave me and the belief that it gave me that, yeah, this is the right thing to do. What a lovely thing to say. And I spoke to Paul Power, who was my original hero, my coaching partner, my mentor, and other people, Jim Cassell as well. And whilst loads of people were offering different, well, pretty much the same advice, but in different ways. Yeah. Paul Power just hit me with a one-liner and said, it's better to live like a lion for a day than a mouse for a lifetime. Yeah. And it knocked me off my feet. Uh, and as a competitor, I thought, yeah, I'm having some of this. You're right. So with the Gary Cook influence and the encouragement to take it, knowing that I could come back, and for my hero to say, come on, 
you've got to have a go at this. Yeah. And I, I rang up the Rochdale chairman and accepted, and I knew it was going to be a tough job. Wasn't left with many players or a big budget. Um, and obviously you hope for more time in, in development. Once you take the job, signing a three-year contract, you don't believe anything other than you're going to be there for that period. Yeah. But the competition was hard, uh, did some good things, but made some mistakes. But I have absolutely no regrets for taking up the challenge. Really enjoyed it. Really got strong feelings for the club still. Uh, with good people there, even though my friend Brian Barry Murphy, the manager, has just left. Yeah. Uh, and I actually think that, that if I hadn't have become a manager in terms of status and profile, regardless of them, you know, sacking me at the Christmas time and replacing me, probably a kinder word, that I wouldn't have been able to become first team coach at Huddersfield under Dean Hoyle and Nigel Clibbins and get promoted out of the division at the top end of it had I not been a manager in the same season. So there were lots of good things about it, but uh, unfortunately, the caretaker manager had seven games and lost six yeah. and drew one. So out of seven. And then the next manager came in and they sunk to the bottom of the league. So three of us had a go at it that year, but I don't believe I was the one that took them down. But obviously, I was the one that started the season and I'll always believe that we would have been all right. But, you know, we'll, we'll, we will obviously never know. But it turned out to be that the club have actually been down, back up, and a back down again, so it's a bit of a yo-yo club. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's one of those. Did you find it transition a bit hard? I guess you you weren't afforded enough time to, to turn around the fortunes. I mean, we've seen it last season. Um, Bolton struggling at the start of the season, but you never was given time to turn it around, and, and he did so, and and they, and they won promotion. So it's all about patience and, and time. But a lot of chairmen just just get itchy feet, don't they? Sometimes and, and pull the trigger. Yeah. Well, I think they wanted to give it the caretaker who was the youth coach at the time, but he didn't do anything with the results. Yeah. Um, he's doing very well now um, in League Two as a manager. He's getting that time at Carlisle, so yeah. he'll have benefited from that experience. And then I think they, the clamour was then, oh, we've tried a young coach, we've tried an in-house coach, we now need some experience. It made it easier for me because John Coleman was a friend of mine. Yeah. So, uh, you know, there was no hard feelings as such. And it only, it only got worse after, after I left. Um, I wish I'd have recruited better, but you don't know, you know, some vital positions that I got wrong, but you don't know that while you're signing them. Yeah. Some of them had pedigree. Some were always going to be a risk. I think the thing I learned most, Eric, and this is, I don't believe there's that many people as honest as me in this, in this position, at Manchester City, schoolboys and youth and young professional, the fast-tracking of coaching, of them improving, and, and it, it helped because your team was playing well, winning, and it was full of good players. But we used to see players improve within four weeks. If they came in late, they'd improve within four weeks and all of a sudden they were up to speed doing it your way, doing it the Manchester City way, doing it the rest of the teammates. But at the senior level, in the tough tough level of League One, uh, towards like, obviously the bottom six, seven of it, of it, I saw these lads who possibly weren't good enough not getting any better. Yeah. Um, maybe you don't get the same coaching time, you know, your, your rest recovery, your Saturday, Tuesday you might only have them for three or four days. So I couldn't understand at the time why lads weren't springboarding into a better improvement level than what I've seen for 10, 12, 15 years at Manchester City, who lads where they came improved almost immediately. I'm seeing these lads who were struggling, continuing to struggle. So um, you don't then have the opportunity to dip into the budget um, and sign new players. And we played, you know, decent football, but we were open. Uh, a lot of games were like basketball and we were very much a hit-miss-or-maybe team and 
You know, one local derby against Bury, one local against Preston would beat a Premier League team in QPR. Yeah. Um, but it was only ever hit, miss or maybe because consistency to follow up with back-to-back or dare to go 3-4, the team weren't good enough. And uh, obviously, as the manager, you take responsibility for that. And it's something I've never shied away from. I'm, uh, I'm never got... No one never really needs to criticise me um, or level anything at me because I'm pretty damn sure I'll have done it myself. Yeah. Uh, the highlight that you mentioned, you touched on, Steve, was that win over QPR. We were in the yeah. Premier League in the, the Carling Cup at the time that... Uh, fond memories of that again because that's, that's some scalp that yeah evening against Neil Warnock uh, I remember it was Keith Curl um, you know Loftus Road it wasn't full or anything like that so I said this in the team talk to the players that uh, you know this isn't a Saturday three o'clock but you know in the, in the Premier League this is a Tuesday in the Carling Cup and I'm not sure they fancy it and uh, I will say that you know I, 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 it'd be unfair to name him but one of the QPR staff shook my hand before the game now if I was nervous before the game, I wasn't nervous after the handshake because he said to me, don't do anything silly tonight and you'll go through. So <laughs> I, I, it showed me, you know, I couldn't transfer that back to the team because they were already out onto the pitch. Yeah. But it's kind of like filled me with optimism that, right, I'll, I can do that. I, that. That's within my remit, that I can do that. And that's exactly what we did. And we played well, scored early, continued to play well and scored again and won the game quite comfortably. So, uh Disappointed not to beat Aldershot in the next round because Aldershot beat us and then drew Man United. So uh, yeah. that's football. But the evening was great in itself. Derek at Loftus Road, yeah. Yeah, uh, Neil Warnock, of course, your opposite number that and that and that night. Did, did you have any? Did you enjoy joy run-ins? With, is there any managers in particular you enjoyed a, a run-in or two? No, no, because um, I was brought up the right way to be, you know, show humility, have football courtesy. But once I got into that first team electric chair, Derek, I was not always in pole position to get my own way. So there was no way that I could have to go on the touchline or, uh, you know, I'd always like to conduct myself correctly. But, you know, with the team that I had assembled at Rochdale, and I've already described them as hit, miss or maybe, the chances are I'd end up with egg on my face if I tried anything, you know, silly on the touchline. Uh, I think everybody knew that I was a competitor. I'd stand my ground verbally if I thought something was incorrect but uh I was a I was a novice I was a newcomer and I wasn't intimidated by any of these guys but I did look across at every single one of them and recognized they'd all done more than me in the managerial game so uh I wasn't for having a tear up with anybody and uh I'd like to think they all think that I'm a good lad and a good competitor and very fair yeah some of the players I mean that were there Stephen Darby was he there at the time when you were there at Rochdale Steve I mean it's a tragedy what's happened to him isn't it yeah, I've been walking with him twice. He lives near me. He's married to Steph Orton, the England and Manchester City ladies yeah. captain. Um, and obviously, he has the multi-neuron disease that we see with, with Rob Burrow and, and others. Um, and it's such a shame. He, he was from you know Liverpool's academy. He had a first-team appearance, I think. Went on to captain Bradford City. And this, this, this tragedy that has struck him, you, you, you tend to possibly get emotional and suggest, oh, how could it happen to the nicest lad in the world? It's, it, yeah. You know, well, he actually is. He genuinely is a really good professional, really good lad and a hell of a nice lad. So uh, he was OK, but he was also, you know, there was too many like me on the pitch who were learning their trade yeah. uh, on the job. Uh, and I didn't have enough senior players, although I did have a really good one in Gary Jones. 
who was the club legend and the club captain who also went to Bradford City. But I needed another four or five like that and I didn't have them. Yeah, and from there you'd you'd go to Huddersfield, uh, then a good, a good club to, to go to at, at that point, and um, you took charge of the was it the development squad there, Steve? Well, there wasn't there wasn't a development squad. Uh, they <laughs> they had to build one as the as wow. the um, you know the uh, the things that you have to implement from the Premier League, like I say, with this EPP. So I benefited from that point. Their under 18s uh, I just finished bottom of the league. They decided to give three outfield players a professional contract and a goalkeeper. So I had four players and I was told that I was going to come in and start a development squad. Um, And I thought, well, how's this going to work? We've got three outfield players, a goalie, just finished bottom of the league and you're now expecting us to play in a competitive league. Well, yeah, that's what we want you to do. Uh, But equally, you'll work closely with the manager who just appointed Simon Grayson. Um, And eventually you'll have a, a, a squad uh, of any which way you want to do it. Nigel Clibbins and Dean Hoyle gave me this remit. Play players up. Occasionally, you might have players from the first team that, that that join you. But actually, this is your area of expertise. Just recruit as best you can and get as a team. We'll fund it to a point where we can compete in this uh, development league because we have to. Um, and I thought, well, obviously, going to get a, a, you know, a few drubbings here, but I'm grateful for the opportunity. But um, the three outfield players... Uh, one of them is Matt Crooks, who's subject to a few bids now uh, from Rotherham, who's, who's getting around the game. Um, I think Ipswich are in for him, Derby are in for him, but he's still a Rotherham player. Um, one was a lad who didn't make it called Max Leonard, who was fine, but the other lad was Jordan Sinnott, who sadly, after I took him to Chesterfield when I went there, he was attacked on a night out and, and died. So, you know, I've got fond memories of that time and a goalkeeper was called Lloyd Allenson. But by hook or by crook, um, I managed to bring Tommy Smith with me from Manchester City, who'd just been released. Tommy ended up captain in the club, played over 150 games, up the steps at Wembley to lift the trophy and was sold for two million. Uh, we got Philip Billing in on trial. Five lads from uh, Denmark came over and we picked out Philip Billing to join us. Um, Paul Mullin came in on trial. He's just scored 34 goals in League Two. Murray Wallace wasn't ready for the first team. He's a good player in, in the championship. Tom Clark was not in the first team. And all of a sudden, I just got two or three more from City and Rochdale and got a team together. Dwayne Holmes was a young player who's back at Huddersfield now after Derby County. And all of a sudden, I had this group of boys, men, young, young men and men. And it was like, well, let's have a go at this. But we managed to win the league. And then we won it the year after too. So for two years running, we won the development league. Sorry, Derek, the sun's coming right through here now. That's okay. Uh, and then, um, luckily enough, then, uh, well, we were good enough, Simon Grayson took the team up at Wembley on penalties, despite losing the first, uh, so missing the first three penalties against Sheffield United, but still winning. And uh, we were in the championship. I was the development coach. And over time, I got closer and closer to the first team until becoming the first team coach there. Brilliant club, brilliant six years. Yeah, Dean Hoyle, of course, uh, the chairman at the time, absolutely loves the club, doesn't he? He's Mr. Huddersfield, if you like. What, what was he like? Fantastic. Um, ruthless. Yeah. Um, I saw him move people on and I thought, oh, you know, Lee Clark was 43 games unbeaten and, and yeah. he didn't think he was going to get him over the line and gave Simon Grayson the job. So that showed me what, uh, you know, what a ruthless... Well, it's a lovely man. What a ruthless football yeah. mind he had. Uh, and obviously, I kind of like realised 
I wasn't in the firing line at that point, but I would be one day. Yeah. And when he changed the he changed the model, you know, he yeah. went um, Simon Grayson, Mark Robbins, Chris Powell, David Wagner. So if you if you look and have your own opinion of them, they're all different characters, really. Yeah. So I'm not sure if Dean gets bored or, or a change excites him, but I did know one day that my time would come to leave um, once I'd got to the top end of the club, yeah. uh, even though I didn't want to because I loved it. And when he chose the foreign way to do it with the uh, the David Wagner and the German staff, I was uh, unfortunately, you know, moved on. Yeah. So uh, I was sad to leave there. That was a really nice time of my life for me. Yeah, I was going to say that. Yeah, you must be disappointed to, that it would come to an end, especially after being successful. But that's football. I guess you just learn it's, it's cut through at times. Yeah, uh, and also the thing that upset me most was, you know, winning, winning, you know, two development leagues was a great achievement, but I kind of like expected that of myself after a bit as the job. So, yeah. you know, I don't really, you know, shout about that too much. But in the same week, they sold Tommy Smith for 2 million, Philip Billion for 15. So that's 17 million. Yeah. But we were also caretaker managers, Mark Lillis, the club legend, and myself, joint caretaker managers on three occasions, winning six games, you know, bouncing the club back up, up the league, getting points, getting crowd back on the side. Yeah. So I really felt whilst... I will leave Rochdale and think, nah, they never saw the best of me and I didn't make my mark. At Huddersfield, I'm confident, and obviously the the, the relationships I have with Dean and others, that despite leaving, I certainly I certainly left my mark there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And from there then, you'd go to Chesterfield. How did that, that opportunity come up? That was, um, they were struggling at the time and a bit of time out of work, doing some media work. And then I met Gary Caldwell on the pro licence yeah, uh, he was on the Scottish one. I was on the English one, and, and part of the study was a combined. And he was looking for a coach, so it was quite comfortable um, that he would ask and I would accept, and we'd go from there. And we'd travel over from Manchester. It'd take a couple of hours, and the team were struggling at the bottom of League One, but he had really strong beliefs of how to play the game um, romantically. Really, really. Oh, really good-minded ideas, but I'm just not sure that the team were capable to follow up his dream. And uh, he'd won League One with Wigan Athletic with some great players and unfortunately got rest relegated with Chesterfield with some poor ones. Yeah, and that's, of course, at Chesterfield, you did, uh, Ian Everett was there as well, Steve. Did, did, yeah. did you sort of sense when, when he was there, he'd be a player that he would go on and become a coach as soon as he would finish his, his career as playing? A certainty. Um, senior player, uh, loved by supporters. He has that endearing personality, uh, leader. Um, a lot of things that, that people are craving for in the game now uh, that you don't see. He, he was, you know, uh, obviously his body was at the point of not retiring or finishing, but occasionally letting him down. Um, but his heart was into it and he was fantastic. He was really helpful to me coming in settling and he was interested in the coaching side of it and you know you'd, you'd run things by him because you would value his opinion and what came back was not just a senior player or a club legend or someone who's had a good career it was someone that was going to be a coach or a manager and he's obviously doing fantastically well yeah that, that aside I mean Chesterfield I mean, they've, they've really have tumbled down the leagues in, in recent recent times haven't they Steve it, it's, it's, I guess it's sad to see I mean a club like that shouldn't be where they are should they no, and, and you know, there's a Stockport County or another. Yeah. Um, brilliant supporters. One thing I found, you know, the time 
you know, that a few nights a week I'd stop over. Everybody wanted a piece of you to talk about the team, the players, the club, and you know, real passionate set of supporters. I actually liked the 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 the, the board set up there because they, they gave me a role there. Uh, and they were very good to me, you know, Ashley Carson, Dave Allen, they were good people to me, but obviously they took a little bit of stick. Social media doesn't help. I think they made some errors that they never managed to eradicate from people's minds uh, because the team was so poor and, and going down the table. Uh, they do look like there's a bit of a resurgence now, but unfortunately they've just failed in the playoffs. But yeah, yeah great club, really good club. Yeah. So then the Fleetwood opportunity comes up. Joey, of course, uh, goes there and he's, First managerial uh, job, was it just a case that he just phoned you up and asked you if you fancy company, uh, company, company Fleetwood? Exactly that. About six months before it actually came out, so you've never you don't get the opportunity often to to plan for a job as such. Yeah, I think they just got I think they just got rid of Uwe Rosler. They were about to appoint John Sheridan for the rest of the season because Joey had a football ban for uh, some betting irregularity, whatever, yeah, yeah. Uh, when he was still a Burnley player. So he couldn't set the position, but it's not often you go, you get the opportunity to plan for a job five or six months in advance, which is the second part of the season and the summer. So we had loads of chats, uh, loads of dreams. Yeah. Um, and one thing Joey had is this unbelievable self-belief of how to play the game, uh, how he could be as a manager. But bizarrely, even though deep down he would in the end, he actually didn't know whether he could coach. So I think tried and trusted. Uh, we were very top-heavy with staff. Uh, we had too many staff. But he, he appointed Clint Hill. Eventually, he appointed Andy Mangan, who's his best friend. He had some outside good influences in like mentors like Steve Black, um, like a psychologist. But obviously, none of these had ever coached, really, you know, or, or at all. So he covered that with me. But it caught up with me probably after about two years because all the lads not only did they want to start coaching and taking the sessions, what I was doing, they also became very good at it. So we were sharing it around and we were top heavy with staff. And in the end, after I think just short of three years, uh, I moved on. I think Andy Mangan retired at Accrington as a, being a sub not used. Joey brought him in possibly as a volunteer at the start. Uh, and we were definitely top heavy. And I was beginning to feel the, the weight of, not doing as much as I used to and preferring to be heavily involved. Um, and I didn't speak to him about it. I just thought it would play out. But in the end, we just agreed that, that there was just too many staff and yeah. I left. They only won two games out of the following 14, which hurt me because I felt like I should be there helping and doing my thing. But what they did do, they rallied and they became the best team in the league for about two months, went on a, possibly more, went on an unbelievable run, got to the playoffs um, and I will always believe without the pandemic and uh, the points decision, they'd have possibly even got automatic, but they didn't make a great go of the playoffs in terms of outcome, but their effort was there and they've never been as high as the day that I left, which was fourth in League One, but it's another great club, great chairman. And I do believe Joey taking himself out of his own comfort zone to carry on the journey five hours away from home, playing the long game. He's just took a relegation on the chin. Um, or picking up the pieces of a, a poorly run club, it seemed when when he when he got it. Although they weren't in the relegation positions when we did take it, they yeah. finished bottom of the league. Playing the long game, possibly I have a blind spot where he's concerned, but I know him too well and have listened to so many conversations to not believe that he won't end up in at least a championship as a manager one day. 
Yeah, and uh, knowing them like you do, Steve, I guess it was quite lively at, uh, sharing a, a dugout with them during games. Um, yeah, you know, but a lot of it overhyped, Derek. Yeah. Um, there was the Barnsley incident, which you can't really discuss because it's yeah. still uh, been put aside, you know, under 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 the court and, and legal and things like that. But very rarely did he get involved with the opposition bench. Again, we were winning games. You're getting your own way. So the best way of, you know, enticing conflict is letting your players perform for you. And he prepared them superbly. Um, always believed that the result would take care of itself if everybody did the jobs and trained hard through the week. And, um, you know, beat Scunthorpe six away, uh, beat Blackpool at home, although Blackpool have beat them since more than once. Yeah. And, you know, there was big occasions that they you know, drew away at Sunderland. Sunderland never managed to, to beat him under his time. And it, it, it was great. There was dozens of those encounters and he never, ever, ever had any mishaps or misdemeanors with any other bench. And I think deep down, the opposition lads love trading with him because he's great. He's great fun and he's a great football man. So uh, n- never, never, honestly, hand on heart, never did I see any type of anything that would spill over. Even when he got sent off away at Bristol Rovers, it was against the referee. He never bothered with anybody else's dugout. To be honest with you, he's very, very respectfully aloof. He wouldn't lower himself too often to get involved with the opposition's dugout because yeah. he's too hell-bent on doing well for his own staff, for his own players and for his own supporters. I don't even think he glances over too often, honestly. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, at least the sun's gone now. I can see a bit better now. You watched a lot of Bolton and... Uh, it helped out, which was really fortunate with the, the media work with uh, Bolton FM. And, you, of course, you've done stuff with BBC Manchester as well. Um, in terms of Bolton, uh, what did you make of them last season, Stephen? How do you think they'll get on next next season? I thought I thought they um, had a remarkable um, Christmas onwards, basically giving the Football League of League Two a 20-point head start yeah. at the start. Um, I think you could put that down to mixed recruitment. Um, nobody is really taking full ownership of who signed the players that weren't good enough. Um, but certainly the, the players that were signed in January were good enough. So there was immediate upgrade once Ian Everett had been given full control of the club and recruitment. Uh, I think he changed his title, if that matters. Uh, changing the goalkeeper was crucial. Yeah. Uh, changing the formation was crucial. And they just went on an unbelievable run. They didn't score many goals from set plays. So when you consider that basically they gave everybody a 20-point head start, they were very low scoring on set plays, they should have really even been champions. But to actually get promoted, they could have got promoted uh, a week earlier, of of course, but they did it slightly different. I think the job he did was absolutely remarkable. I really do. And I think the wave that he's on, which actually goes further back because he had a promotion with Barrow, who had no right to get out of the conference with the players and budget, to then go to Bolton and, and pick it up off the floor, um, go backwards with it for three months, to then accelerate forwards to promotion. It was a fantastic achievement and must have had him close to being in the running of being the manager of the whole of the football leagues. Mm. Next season, um, I think they will um, grow. I still think they're fairly a young team. They've got the experience of Jilks and Baptiste and Doyle. But I think they've recruited well in Sheehan. I think they've got some good support players that have signed. Uh, Bakayoko, Ameson and others. Still got Sarsevich, Kieran Lee. Uh, Andrew Tutt hopefully will get more game time. Um, obviously, the lad from West Ham has um, 
has, has now signed on a on a, Line, yeah. on, on a on a on a permanent. So all things being said, I think it's Ian Everett's time and Bolton Wanderers' time where I think they can be in and around the top ten places. And hopefully, nobody would expect too much more than that. But I know him being ambitious. If they are in those places and there's enough games left, they'll be going all out for promotion again. Yeah, absolutely. And and finally, on a sort of personal level for you, Steve, you must be itching to get back in the dugout somewhere yourself. Yeah, I am. I am. I've had a couple of opportunities in youth football to go back in, uh, which I'm very, very grateful for. There's no ego. It'd be something I'm willing to do. I think it's got to be the right club. I think it's got to be the right people. Um, but I've just resisted for now because the first team drug, if you like. I like the crowd. I like playing for three points. I like the pressure of it. I like working with the men. Um, these jobs don't grow on trees. I think the game is fat with friends. I think the game is fat with idiots. But also, there's a lot of good people in it too. Um, so you've got to wait for the right opportunity. But you've also got to be honest and wonder how long do you wait for that opportunity. So I wouldn't rule out going back into youth football one day. It would be a little bit of a wrench and a little bit difficult for me to do it anywhere other than Manchester City, having done so well there at the club that I love with so many special times and so many special players. But um, I'd be more than willing to do it again for the right club and the right people. Um but I'm just going to probably, obviously, now it doesn't look like I'll be starting the season somewhere. But I'll be doing the media work. I'll be staying connected. I'll be scouting for lots of clubs, doing favours and putting in reports on players and, and teams and how they play and how they can beat them. And hopefully the opportunity will come up sooner than later, Derry. But I'm certainly ready to go back. Yeah, well, I wish you all the best going forward, Steve. It's been brilliant having you on. So thanks very much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. I just hope the sun hasn't hasn't blocked everything out it keeps coming in <laughs> not put this at a good vantage point but thanks very much for having me that was episode 110 of the Talking Fitball podcast with Steve Ayer I hope you enjoyed it as ever remember if you want to listen to any previous episodes you can catch them all on the website talkingfitball.co.uk We'll also find a whole load of great articles on there. You can also listen to them on pretty much all podcast platforms now. If you're on Twitter, you can follow us at Talking underscore Fitball and we're on Facebook as well. And remember, if you want to sponsor the podcast, you can do just that. Just visit the Get Involved page on the website or email us at contact at DerekClarkSports.co.uk. Hope you can join me again next time, but until then, keep safe and bye for now.